As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. And welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, something that you've been writing about lately, and of course, we're still in the middle of this extraordinary global crisis. The The story has taken on a new di- new dimension. And I feel like you uh, uh, being positioned in Hong Kong, covering the story from Asia, it's going to really, uh, really an area that you can appreciate. Oh, what's that? Well, I mean, in the last few days, and we're recording this on uh, May 4th, 2020, so important to note, um, the the idea of the trade war, tariffs, China-U.S. trade tensions has really sort of reemerged as one of the subplots, so to speak, within this crisis. Oh, yeah. So uh, after a relatively long hiatus, we have Donald Trump once again threatening tariffs on China. And of course, there are political dimensions to what he's doing. China is sort of an easy distraction or an easy um, scapegoat for the coronavirus chaos. But yeah, it's definitely interesting to see the trade war pop up again in the midst of what is arguably the biggest global recession that we have had for a long time. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because obviously the trade war, trade tensions dominated really the second half of last year, and you would have expected that sort of perhaps very early on in this crisis, uh, that uh, due to the origin of the virus, that Trump would have taken an extremely hard line against China. But so far, at least rhetorically, he, he's been fairly conciliatory. Um, I, I guess that's true, but it does feel like it's something that's probably going to come. The other thing that I find really weird about the whole past few months in the market reaction was back in January and February when we saw large chunks of the Chinese economy shutting down because of the coronavirus efforts. It took a really long time for the market to react. And it was so odd. I think we've had this conversation before, but it was so odd because we spent all of 2019 worrying about a trade war. And then effectively, we had something that amounted to a similar thing in the form of the Chinese economy shutting down. And the market didn't seem to care anymore. Right. Here we have like the, the biggest supply shock, so to speak, imaginable with a total shutdown of manufacturing. And I remember like the first real coronavirus episode we did, and it was before U.S. markets really started crashing, uh, was with uh, Dan Wang of GavCal talking about, I think it was just after or it was the week that Apple warned about the disruptions. And that was the first time like U.S. markets like really started uh, getting very anxious about this. 
But the beginning of the story was really about sort of like the supply side disruptions out of China, because, of course, at that point, um, I think it was, you know, mid or late February, there wasn't an appreciation yet in the markets of what it would do to the economies of the U.S. and Europe, which would, you know, de facto total shutdown. Yeah, but that was another weird thing because people were very focused on the supply shock side of it. And there were, you know, just a handful of people who were really talking about the hit to demand. Uh, and now two months later, it's it's pretty clear it's both a demand and a supply shock. Right. And the really interesting thing over here in Asia, as we sort of emerge from lockdown and start to recover, is that even though manufacturing is getting back up and running, a lot of people still aren't in the shop. So in China, for instance, you know, the authorities there are trying to give out vouchers in order to get people to go shopping. Right. So that's the problem. I mean, we've seen perhaps surprisingly the speed with which manufacturing can come back online uh, in China, various factories starting up, but that doesn't help much if they have no one to sell to. Yeah, exactly. Supply and demand shock uh, isn't a great thing for the global economy. Uh, indeed. So now, anyway, that the trade war is perhaps starting to reemerge as a dimension of this story, uh, I thought it would be a good idea to talk about that. And we have the perfect uh, guest. I think we've never had him on, but he's someone who we're both friends with uh, and uh, someone perfectly positioned to speak to the tensions that are here and which may be emerging uh, in the months ahead. Great. I can't wait. All right, so today we are going to be speaking with Matt Klein. He is a columnist, an economic columnist at uh, Barron's Magazine, and he is the author of a new book called Trade Wars Are Class Wars, which he co-authored with Michael Pettis, who we have had on the show. And uh, he, we are going to talk about the sort of trade dimensions of this crisis and its aftermath, both in terms of the current sort of saber-rattling and what it might mean as countries really start to uh, attempt to revive their economy. So, Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So, Matt, before we get started sort of like with this crisis specifically, and we've talked about this a little bit with your co-author on a uh, previous episode, Michael Pettis, but what is the core premise of your new book when you say trade wars are class wars? What is the sort of basic idea there? The basic idea is that even though it's very easy to perceive trade conflicts as being between countries, because governments are usually actually agents that are waging trade conflicts with each other, and so we therefore conclude that it's about national interests and geopolitics and things like that, that actually the drivers of trade conflicts are internal class conflicts, and that if you have high or rising inequality, uh, income inequality within a society, that's going to end up creating various economic distortions that will spill over into the rest of the world and end up harming people outside of their own national borders. So when you think about, for example, the trade conflict between China and the United States, it's not so much that Chinese workers and American workers are in some zero-sum game for jobs and incomes. It's actually the opposite, that American workers have been harmed by policy in China that also harm and will primarily aim at harming Chinese workers. So it makes more sense to think about this as a class conflict rather than a national conflict. So talk to us a bit about how you mentioned distortions, but I guess another word for those would be imbalances in the global economy. Talk to us about how those build up and, and which ones are sort of most at play in the current climate. Sure. So 
imbalances are not necessarily a bad thing, but basically it's the society produces goods and services and also consumes goods and services. And in a closed economy where there's no trade between societies, the amount of or value of those goods and services that are produced and consumed have to be the same. If you have trade, though, you can actually have situations where one society produces more than it uh, consumes and, and uses as investment inputs domestically, while other and, and therefore has a surplus that it can export elsewhere. And you have other societies, uh, correspondingly, that are going to end up uh, consuming and investing more than they're capable of producing. And this can be very beneficial. So we talk a fair amount in the book about how historically development in terms of you know industrialization has often depended upon countries relying on the sort of surplus resources of others in order to develop without starving themselves. So this happened in the United States, this happened in Korea, basically ever since in South Korea, ever since independence. Um, it happened in Norway, and it's not a super well-known example, but the development of the Norwegian oil and gas industry depended on massive amounts of uh, foreign investment because the whole poor country and couldn't do it themselves. Uh, but it can also be really problematic if you have a situation where instead of imports supplementing domestic production, you have imports displacing domestic production. Uh, and instead of you know facilitating something valuable like the development of offshore oil and gas that provide income for generations, you have instead uh, people losing their jobs and then forced to borrow uh, to maintain some semblance of their standard living, which is what actually happened in many parts of the world, particularly the United States, over the past several decades. So before we get to the current crisis, um, just to sort of make it very clear what the mechanism that we've been talking about is, talk to us about the link between Chinese industrial policy, the repression of Chinese workers and Chinese household and Chinese household savings, and that how that creates spillovers specifically that end up harming American workers. The basic thing to understand is that you can sort of vastly oversimplify the world into two types of entities. One is people who, if you give them a bit of extra income, it's going to get spent, or most of it's going to get spent relatively quickly. And then there are entities where if you give them extra income, it will not get spent, or a large proportion of it will not get spent. And what's generally happened in China and, and other countries as well, but what's happened is that we've had effectively shift in the distribution of income from people who would spend most of their money, particularly you know, Chinese workers and ordinary savers, towards entities that do not, whether it's um, provincial governments or the rich in China or certain kinds of enterprises within China. Uh, and that's essentially led to a condition where there's a lot of what, you know, use the technical term, excess saving. So if you think of production minus your immediate consumption as saving, then there's a lot more saving than there otherwise would be. But the flip side of that is simply that regular people aren't able to consume. The share of income paid to Chinese workers is exceptionally low. So the extent that we have comparable data for this, and it's you know a couple of years out of date from the Chinese updated, and the last time I saw it was in 2016, but I don't think it's changed dramatically since then. About uh, 40% of the value of Chinese uh, non-financial corporations is paid out to workers. Now, for comparison's sake, in the U.S. and Europe and Japan, it's between sort of 60 to 70%. So there's a real big difference between the norm in China and the norm in the rest of the world. And there are a lot of factors we can point to that enable this. For example, uh, labor organizing is illegal. There was a big um, way, a couple of years ago, there's a situation where a lot of very earnest Chinese college students at top universities uh, were taking seriously the guidance of their leaders to study 
Marxist classics, and and uh, they realize that they should be making like there's some ideological forebears and going out to the factories and trying to organize workers, and they all got arrested. Uh, and then they had to, you know, forced to apologize. It's actually kind of interesting. We're recording this on May 4th because that's, you know, 101 years ago. May 4th was when, you know, the Chinese Communist Party sort of traces the intellectual antecedents that. It was where you had, uh, university students who were politically active and calling for changes and, and reforms. So, you know, the government is very aware of what's going on in the campuses and they want to make sure that they aren't threatening. The idea of an alliance between workers and students is something that's very frightening them. And so that's something you saw. There's the household registration or UCO system, which, I mean, other people have written about the Chinese government says that they know that the system is a problem, but they don't do anything about it. And essentially, what it is a form of internal population movement controls. It was set up by Mao and, and his, um, and, you know, that period. And basically, it was supposed to keep people in the village where they were born, and that way you maintain a supply of agricultural labor, things like that, and also presumably to discourage revolutionary activity. It's been maintained. It's been loosened since then. So you have hundreds of millions of internal migrants going from the countryside to cities reporting, providing a very large share of the urban workforce. But technically speaking, they're not really legal residents of the places they're living. And they don't have access to a lot of the benefits that legal residents have, such as education and healthcare. They do have to pay the taxes as part of their social security contributions, but they don't get the benefits. And they're always at risk uh, in theory, of being deported. And you saw this again, I think this was around 2018, 2019, where uh, large sections of Beijing, where a lot of migrant workers live, were basically cleared out because they were supposed to be unsanitary. But you put this in the context of the local governments in places such as Beijing and Shanghai saying they want to have population caps because they think they're overcrowded and they're not benefits to the locals. And you're essentially seeing sort of inside China, uh, you know, immigration restrictionism showing up among different areas of the country. And so that's you know, a new thing, and that's something you definitely watch. But the fact that that's always a possibility of someone being deported like that, obviously, is going to undermine whatever negotiating power workers would have. Uh, yeah, and it goes the other way, too, which is that the extent that which you lived in the city, you thought you had some kind of benefit, then you could always import someone from an extremely poor village in the western part of the country. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So when you consider all these sort of uh, restrictions or communism with Chinese characteristics that ends up creating this kind of inequality in China, and then you look also at the imbalances in the U.S. and inequality there, I I guess my question is, which one of those is a bigger problem or which one is the greater contributor to the trade tensions that we're currently seeing between the two countries? That's a great question. And it's something that uh, we've spent a fair amount of time in the book trying to address in the chapter that we have on the United States, because it's absolutely right that the United States, not as necessarily unequal as China, hasn't gone to the same level, you know, same amount of change, mm-hmm. but it's definitely uh, significant. So on the one hand, you do have a lot of developments in the U.S. that resemble, actually, in many ways, resemble what happened in Germany. So we, we made that point explicitly in the book in terms of, you know, the, the shifts that happened sort of post-2005. That is partly offset 
by the fact that the United States, so two things. One is that the United States financial system is very open and accommodating of events or desires in the rest of the world. And relatedly, that the consumer market also adapts to sort of what, you know, accommodate how the financial system decides to respond. So, and the rest of the world, you know, whether they know this or they're just, you know, their, their preferences, but essentially, if you have excess savings and you're in China, a bunch of that's going to end up somehow in the United States. And that's true globally. It will end up being the case that the United States serves as a sink for the Western, rest of the world. And I think the, the way to see this is these countervailing forces is the fact that if you look at some of the European countries that had these massive booms and busts in the 2000s, and, you know, essentially driven by trade, essentially what you consider sort of a trade conflict uh, type scenario that was similar to the U.S., they're actually much larger. And those were places where the, where the inequality was much more restrained. So somewhere like Spain or Italy, you didn't see, or Greece for that matter, you didn't see the same kind of shift in the income distribution before the crisis in those places that you did in the United States. And yet you saw, and not yet perhaps, I can think you could sort of point to the causal Length, but that's why there was a commensurately bigger shift in their um, international balances because their domestic balances, because they were less domestically imbalanced, uh, they absorbed that with a greater foreign balance. And so I think that the U.S. we sort of ended up with the worst of both worlds in many ways because we had so much weakness domestically, the kind of thing that would have led to trade surpluses uh, in terms of domestic investment, government infrastructure investment, weak wage growth, and yet. That didn't even translate into trade surpluses that led to financial stability. That was just compounded by the you know increase in borrowing from the rest of the world uh, that we ended up seeing. So, Matt, just just to sort of like sort of square the circle here for people who haven't thought about it in this respect, if you say, "Oh, the U.S. ends up as a sink for everybody's savings." A lot of people listen to that and they're like, oh, well, that sounds like a good thing. People want to recycle their extra money in the U.S. They want to buy our debt. They want to invest in assets. And what are the real economy ramifications of a world that wants to recycle its extra dollars into the United States? So I think the easiest way to look at it is the corresponding entry to those financial inflows coming to the U.S. is that there's also a lot of goods and services coming into the U.S., that may be, that are effectively also excess. So if you take away sort of, I mean, it's very useful to look at from the perspective of financial markets. I know this is you know, financial markets podcast, but if you look at sort of abstract away from that in a sense of in China and in other countries, there are more goods and services being produced than absorbed domestically. That creates a glut of stuff. In practice, it's stuff. The services trade is not really a big thing. So it's stuff, a glut of stuff. They're not buying it at home. So someone has to buy it. So they're selling it somewhere else. Now, if we want more stuff than we are capable of producing, then that's great for us because then we end up with more stuff than we could have had and, and our living standards are higher. But if instead what actually happens is we could have produced that stuff ourselves, but we don't because we're getting it from someone else at a you know heavily subsidized discount, then we're worse off. So which is in fact what we've seen in the United States in particular, where the capacity utilization of the manufacturing sector, which is essentially just telling you how much of the factory is actually running. If you look at the employment data, all these things, what they show is that there, we were capable of producing a lot more than we were, but we ended up just using a lot of jobs instead because we got it from somewhere else. And that was only tenable because there was a lot of uh, 
finance money coming in to allow people to borrow and spend the difference. But that, of course, is not a sustainable strategy, right? I mean, if you lose your job, but then you're able to sort of keep on a certain amount of spending because, well, your house has gone up in value and you can get a second mortgage or you have some disability benefits temporarily. I mean, that's not really going to be a long-term, you know, sustainable economic uh, solution for anyone. And that's why it's, it's, it's so harmful. And when people say, oh, we, the United States benefits from this, you have to be very careful of who is actually benefiting. Right. So basically, that's why Trump won. I think it's a contributing factor. I mean, I'm, you know, look, we're not like political science people, and I don't want to get too much into the, into the weeds on that. But I mean, there have been people who sort of study at the margin of were places that were negatively affected in places such as Wisconsin and Michigan, Pennsylvania, and it looks as if there's a high correlation between the change in the share, the vote share uh, of those people, you know, from Democrat, Republican over time in presidential elections, and the impact of competition from or displacement essentially from Chinese imports. So I don't think it's unreasonable to say that. So you just described your framework for thinking about the global economy and how these imbalances are, are giving rise to trade tensions between countries. Talk to us about how that framework actually fits into the current crisis when it comes to coronavirus. Joe and I were discussing in the intro about how this is probably going to end up being a supply and a demand shock. How do you see that playing out in your particular framework? So I think you brought it up really well earlier, Tracer. You're talking about that manufacturing capacity has been brought back online much more quickly than consumption. And this is something that you can see in all the data in the, in the Asian countries that had the virus first and also brought the control more quickly. And I think that that's really just going to heighten the trade tensions that were existing before. So I remember shortly before I went on, you know, gradually even sort of stopped paying as close attention to the news, there was this whole idea of this trade phase one trade deal between the U.S. and China that was going to fix everything. I thought was well, it wouldn't. In fact, we wrote in the book that just because China agrees to buy more soybeans or airplanes, or whatever, is not going to change the underlying dynamics here that are creating trade friction. The thing that's going to make it a lot worse is if Chinese consumers, such as they are, permanently reduce their spending, at least for a sustained period of time, while Chinese manufacturing keeps on going at full tilt because the Chinese government wants to make sure people have jobs, and that's going to dramatically increase uh, any frictions that you have between not just China and the U.S., but China and Europe, China and everyone. Um, but it's not just going to be China. I think we're going to see this uh, in a host of countries because the extent that I've been you know, trying to understand this stuff, like manufacturing jobs is relatively easier to make them work under conditions of trying to keep people safe as possible. You can, you're already used to wearing protective gear in a lot of these situations. They're not usually having workers that are right next to each other. So there are ways of adapting to make it you know, work from the perspective of producing things. I would expect that that's going to come back more quickly than many other sections of the economy where you just can't do that. And if that's the case, then you're going to have a situation where even if manufacturing production is running, say, 90% of normal, which is depressionary under normal circumstances, if, if consumption is 70% of normal, it's going to be real imbalance. And you're going to see companies fighting for, for a larger piece of a smaller uh, market share, a smaller market. And that's going to basically all the things that we, that we talk about in the book are going to be much more heightened. We were writing this book in the context of this relatively good sort of cyclical environment for the global economy. And there were problems in terms of debt sustainability. There are questions about what would happen if there were, you know, a downturn in China, or what would happen if, uh, you know, under certain circumstances in Europe. Whatever we were talking about in the book, is sort of, we were thinking as sort of a downside scenario, this is much worse. So that suggests that the kinds of things you're warning about would be just even more extreme. And I think that we're going to, I would not be surprised if we see a lot more uh, extreme conflict about trade as 
countries try to preserve jobs as they can in an environment where demand is just relaxed. And that's going to be, I think, going to be scary. So what does that look like specifically? So China tries to run its factories full tilt to keep people employed. Vietnam does the same thing. Presumably Germany, they're doing a good job of keeping their companies together, keeping their manufacturing going. All these manufacturing powerhouses are going to continue to produce. Demand is collapsed, particularly in the U.S., the consumer of last resort for much of the world. So then where does the rubber meet the road? What's What happens because of that? Where does it go next? That's the big question. I mean, you know, I don't know really how, you know, how to gauge what the U.S. response to this would be, because historically the U.S. has been pretty tolerant, actually, of other countries using the United States sort of as a, you know, dumping ground or sink or whatever word you want to use economically. I don't think this, I think this circumstance is quite different, not just because of who is in charge, but also just because of the magnitude of the shock. So I, I think it's going to be very hard to say how that's going to play out. I mean, I think one would expect that sort of naively, Countries that did a better job containing the virus domestically ought to have relatively more resilient consumer markets. And therefore, if there's full rebalancing, it should be such that the places that are doing relatively well should actually switch, you know, either their surpluses were contracted and moving the deficit or something. So they would actually be absorbing some of the sort of global loss uh, through the trade account. So they can still keep producing things, but maybe they get, you know, import more. I sort of don't think that's going to happen, but it, would, it doesn't happen. It could be quite pleasant. I mean, we're also seeing, you know, sort of in the emerging markets, there's an interesting situation there where, you know, how it played out. It's hard to say, but there's been a, there was a real financing shock for a lot of emerging market countries. They're going to access funds to just maintain spending. And I guess that's partly, seems like it's been alleviated, but the extent that you have this real financial crunch and no certain emerging countries that had been Providing sort of a boost to global demand to degree places such as you know India or Brazil or Turkey or what have you, then that also will have an impact elsewhere. It would be interesting to see how that plays out, and I don't think it'll be good for anyone really. I mean, restoring global demand is obviously the thing that you should really try to focus on here. How you do that in the context of the virus that really discourages a lot of people from engaging in commerce. I don't know. So I guess we're talking about these sort of big picture uh, imbalances. And one of them, um, which comes up throughout your entire book, is that underconsumption notion. And it feels to me like the focus is always on trying to get people to spend less and save more or trying to solve those imbalances in, in saving and spending. Do people ever talk about just producing less? You know, that's an interesting question. I mean, in a certain sense, it's sort of, we're, we're sort of in that world a little bit right now, right? Well, if you go back to the 1930s, that was well, something that was tried. I mean, FDR was dealing with stuff uh, in the agricultural sector where there was, but there were farmers basically just destroying crops and slaughtering their animals. I and mean, actually, we're seeing this now to a certain extent in the meat sector where you have hog farmers who can't sell hogs to meat packing plants because plants are shut down. So they just kill their breeding sows. So uh, that's not really. I would say it's sort of the optimal solution. But yeah, in theory, producing less could be a way of rebalance, you know, leading to a balance in saving spending. I think in general, though, I mean, I, I sort of would not say that we're in a world where literally everyone has everything they could need, and therefore we don't need to worry about producing more stuff. I think it's a question of how do we get the stuff that we can produce.
As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Is it possible that China responds to this crisis by doing things like building out its safety net? I mean, they've just had millions of workers are going to lose their jobs, at least on a temporary basis. Extraordinary shock. It's an extraordinary health shock. Is it possible or could you see China taking that path of essentially helping to build up the um, the uh, safety net for its uh, domestic workers, which would, in theory, become at least a marginal source of demand and a form of uh, rectifying some of these imbalances? You know, that would be great if they did. Uh, I'm not going to pretend to have any deep insight into you know, thinking of the Chinese leadership on this, but we actually did see in response to 2008 something along those lines with the expansion of, of healthcare provision in China and it's not universal healthcare the way they said, but it's not crazy to imagine they would do something similar, especially because you know, even if the official unemployment rolls are not particularly high, those don't count all the migrant workers who have been either forced to go home and don't have jobs where they live. So the real unemployment rate in China is probably much higher. So yeah, if they, if they were to expand their safety and provide some kind of greater income support, that would be fantastic and that would help a lot. And I think that it definitely would be consistent with things in the past they said they want. The question is whether they'll actually do it. So, Matt, you worked with uh, Michael Pettis on, on this book. And I'm just wondering, it's always great having Michael on um, the Oddlots podcast, and he always comes up with you know some interesting anecdotes about China in particular. Was there anything that you learned about China that sort of surprised you in your research? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, well, I actually got to spend about a week and a half uh, at his house working on the book, which was, was quite uh, interesting. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, that, was, that was interesting. I got a chance to tour some of the cuisine in Beijing. Did not get a chance to go hear any of his bands live, um, which I know. <laughs> oh, I know. But uh, <laughs> I guess one thing, this wasn't... Yeah, so this is a bit of an older thing, but one thing that I found striking was they're kind of digging into the history, economic history of China in the 80s and how, in some ways, that was really... The shift from you know sort of the Mao era to the initial sort of late 70s 1980s period, because you had a really heavy-handed state direction, and then there was just a sort of generalized liberalization of policy, and not just liberalization in the sense of just not letting people do anything, but specifically of trying to shift from heavy industry and big industrial projects in the military to, well, let's see if like a small farmer can make a better you know life for himself and for himself, and that was it. Effectively, had a redistributional effect. One of the reasons it was so resisted by the big trench was precisely because it undermined their power by diffusing power and income um, across the broader populace. And then part of the reason that broke apart was that if you liberalize the agricultural sector, which was the vast majority of the country at the time, and also considered less strategic compared to heavy industry, but you don't liberalize the same extent the urban economy, you're going to have mismatches in prices. Or change, changes in relative prices. And one of those was a very sharp increase in food prices relative to urban wages by the end of the 1980s, which led to some pretty widespread discontent. And 
you know, I would not say that is what led to the pro-democracy protests of 1989, but it was definitely a contributing factor. Um, and that's also what people in the government at the time thought, to the extent that there was documents that have been, you know, been published since then, which is partly why, for the Western mind, we generally think of Tiananmen Square specifically, because that's what all the news cameras were, it was a really striking visual, but it was actually a national movement, uh, the pro-democracy movement, and it wasn't just students. It was students, and it was also you know, urban workers and so forth who were disaffected about a variety of things, both political promises and economic promises tied up into that. Which is partly why the government kind of so threatening. And one of the leaders of the foreign market movement who left the Hong Kong was was a worker who now runs something called the China Labor Bulletin. And uh, you know, not college educated at all. And that I think is why they found it as threatening as they did. That's a particular kind of alliance between you know workers and students that you know essentially their origin story. So um, I think that probably that whole sort of narrative and, and then seeing how that sort of reversed over time to a degree is sort of new concentration of even though they didn't roll back the economic reform to the 80s, just the sense of, well, we want to make sure that we're in charge. We don't want to just sort of liberate the masses to be economically independent. Probably the most interesting thing about China that I learned. Matt, before we go, I want to uh, go back to the sort of existing crisis and possible policy responses. What happens, you know, there's been a lot of talk, particularly because of the U.S.'s inability to quickly ramp up the production of um, personal protective equipment for doctors and nurses, uh, the difficulty with uh, rolling out tests rapidly, sort of a lot of awareness about the deficiencies of not having at least certain key things manufactured here. We don't know what the future holds, but what if the U.S. sort of takes a turn for like a very sort of like self-reliant movement where we really focus on uh, increasing domestic manufacturing, throw out massive tariffs and, you know, de facto with the rest of the world. Is this a plausible path? Is this something in your view that the U.S. could possibly do? And what kind of uh, ramifications could that have? Good question. I I have sort of two immediate thoughts. One is that if anyone, any country in the world could do it, it would be the United States. Because the U.S. is by far the most diversified economy in the world. It is large, it is relatively not that exposed to imports and exports compared to other major economies. So if anyone, and, and of course, the U.S. is the most technologically advanced uh, economy in the world. The other thought I have is that in many ways, it would be a return to form. You know, one of the things we talk about in the book is that the original development of the U.S. manufacturing sector was something that was a state-led project because George Washington explicitly said, you can't be a free country if you're dependent on other people for you know, essential supplies. And if the Europeans are going to be unreliable and, we're, and, and you know, we're thousands of miles away from them anyway, uh, you know, we better build up our own manufacturing base. And then the other thing, that, and what happened after that was sort of events took over, which was that you have decades of war between revolutionary France and England and other European powers and so forth. And the U.S. is effectively cut off from Europe anyway. Um, regardless of whether we want to, uh, because we wanted to be neutral and because of blockades and so forth, there, were, there really wasn't any act- ability to access those markets. And sort of by necessity, you had this whole U.S. manufacturing base developed. And it was so significant that by the time the Napoleonic Wars finally end, there's real pressure to institute protective tariffs for the first time at extremely high rates to make sure that the manufacturing sector that had been created doesn't go away. And that ends up being sustained for the next you know, 100 years. So 
I'm not saying that necessarily what you should do, but it wouldn't be, it would definitely be in character for an event like this if you just lose access to supplies, force a change of perspective. In some ways, by the way, you're seeing the Chinese haven't done that already. The Chinese government making sure they don't have to worry about U.S. sanctions that prevent them from getting access to high-tech electronics and parts and so forth. So it's about being self-sufficient so they don't have to worry about using those kinds of things. I think this is sort of a universally understood concept. How that plays out right now, I don't know, but um, it wouldn't be surprising. Uh, Matt Klein, it was so great to talk to you. I feel like I've wanted to talk to you for a long time, and this was the perfect time. So uh, glad it worked out. Uh, thanks for coming, and congrats on the book. Thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. Tracy, I love the way Matt and also his uh, co-author, uh, Michael Pettis, who we talked to several months ago, I love their narrative and the the way they sort of describe the relationships between uh, the different entities, whether it's the Chinese worker or the Chinese elite class, the U.S. elite, the U.S. worker. It's such a more interesting and compelling story than I feel like how most people talk about the trade war. Oh, totally. Uh, I think most people just talk about it in uh, sort of, you know, mercantilist terms, U.S. versus China. Mm -hmm. But the focus on the intra-country imbalances is a really, really interesting and also compelling framework. And uh, the way Matt laid out the sort of um, peculiar <laughs> characteristics of the Chinese socialist system, it, it's really interesting. And also the way he compared and contrasted those with the U.S., right? I'm always sort of amused to be reminded of how unsocialist the Chinese socialist system is, <laughs> that they don't have something that resembling universal health care that students had to apologize for actually studying Karl Marx and attempting to apply what some of the old uh, literature said. But it's a good reminder of like, there really is a system that's designed to sort of push income up into uh, among to the elite who don't spend as much money as the poorer uh, and working class people would if they were getting all of their income. Yeah, absolutely. And again, Matt and Michael have sort of published this at exactly the right time because you can see all of those imbalances and uh, social quirks yeah. are, are going to start playing out in, in the current crisis. And again, one of the big ones is, of course, the notion of the Chinese savings glut. Uh, and after the coronavirus, you can't really see that coming down very much. But we'll see. No, you can't. And also it raises questions, you know, just from a market perspective, too, because a lot of the People are trying to figure out, okay, what does a return to normal look like? Mm. There's the health return to normal. Will people go out? Then there's the question of how much demand will there be domestically for various services that have been forced to shut down restaurants and so forth. But what happens also if demand doesn't, you know, go back to 100%, which it probably won't. Meanwhile, you have this huge glut of supply of goods coming from a Chinese manufacturing sector that's trying to keep everyone employed. Like, it just feels like these sort of aftershocks of this crisis are going to be with us for a long time. Yeah. In other words, uh, many Odd Lots episodes to come on this topic, I think. <laughs> I think you're right. All right. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our guest on Twitter, Matt Klein. He's the author of Trade Wars Are Class Wars. Check it out. His handle is at MCKlein. And be sure to follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. 
the Bloomberg Head of Podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.